Hey everyone, welcome back to the Lombard Trucking Podcast. This is episode four. I want to start off by apologizing. I know it's been a little bit. I've had some friends reach out to me. They said, where the fuck is episode four? And uh, like I said, I am sorry. I've been working hard, been working out. And this past weekend, I was, I had the opportunity to shut down and do a little exploring in St. Louis. Got to see the birthplace of Anheuser-Busch. I tried the famous St. Louis style pizza at Emo's. I also tried the famous St. Louis ribs. I got to explore the arch and I was able to catch an NHL game where the Blues took on the Edmonton Oilers, which was really good because uh, the Oilers have a phenomenal player, Mr. Connor McDavid. He is a very good hockey player. So I was honored to be able to see that St. Louis, really cool city underrated uh i'm personally calling it the capital of the midwest i vibed with a lot of the people there i had a lot of good conversations relating the loss of their beloved rams to connecticut's loss so the hartford whalers we kind of got to uh you know relate in that aspect and led to some good conversations and i met some really cool people one of the coolest things though is the story of that anheuser-busch brewery and it's it's something i wanted to touch in on in the podcast because i feel like America is full of these types of stories, and I feel like these types of stories don't don't come around anymore. And it's like we're not—I don't know why we're not doing them. I don't know why families aren't doing it. I don't know why we've gotten away from from this sort of ingenuity. But I mean, this is a company it started in 1857. It started off from Eberhard Anheuser. He was the first one. He opened up Anheuser Brewing Company. I believe was the first name. And in 1857, in the same year, Adolphus Bush had immigrated to the United States from Germany. He worked for a beer supplier, and that's how he got to meet Eberhard Anheuser. And in 1861, Adolphus ended up marrying Eberhard's daughter, Lily. Now, Adolphus ends up going to fight in the American Civil War. But when he comes back, gets into business, and starts working with his father-in-law, they end up going into business together, and eventually they rename it the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company. A year after they renamed it, Eberhard Anheuser passes away. Adolphus Busch ends up having 13 kids with his wife, Lily. You know, imagine that, 13 kids. You know, in... Who do you know now that has 13 kids? Like nowadays, I'm sure maybe some of your aunts and uncles may have that many, that many, you know, you have that many aunts and uncles or cousins, but you know, him himself having 13 kids in the Bush family ran Anheuser, were the sole people running the Anheuser-Busch brewery up until Anheuser-Busch merged with InBev in 2008. You know, it's just a fucking cool story. And like, I, I feel like we don't have that anymore. Like I mentioned in episode one, when I described the history of Lombard trucking, uh, you know, I wish that was my life. I wish, you know, it's 2021. I wish it, we were approaching the hundred year anniversary of Lombard. And I don't know, for some reason, those things go away and it kind of, it's, it's motivated me. It's had me look forward to the future. Uh, it's had me appreciate, you know, these kinds of stories and hopefully maybe a story like this can motivate you. Now, moving forward, what I wanted to talk about in this episode 
I wanted to go along and continue my story and talk about getting on board with R&R Solutions, who they are as a company, kind of what we do, the freight we're into, the other employees, but I'm not going anywhere from this company. These guys are great, and I'm going to save talking about them for probably episode five, I would imagine. What I wanted to get into in this episode has to do with something I just went on a podcast recently about, and right now I want to give the time and dedicate a, a nice big shout out to the boys over at Hard Factor News, Mark, Pat, Wes, and Will. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on your podcast. You guys have quite the platform. I've been a listener for a while, and uh, it's it was uh, it was an awesome feeling. As you guys are kind of with me every day, and it was an awesome feeling to you know be be on the other end. You know, listen to myself on on your guys' episode last week talking about automation in the trucking industry. If you guys don't know, Hard Factor News is a funny daily news podcast. They started out with Barstool Sports. They've since branched off. They're on their own now. They're on Patreon.com, but they also have free daily news podcasts on Spotify. Highly check their share to daily. I have an Instagram, track, friends news on every so more on and so please if you haven't already go like follow subscribe to them on spotify apple podcasts highly recommend it they do not disappoint now moving on what did i go on heart factor and talk about well, there was an article that came out last week about walmart has been operating two delivery box trucks that have been running autonomously with without a safety driver for the past several months. And they've been working with this Silicon Valley tech company called Gaddick. And I guess these delivery trucks have been going accident free and have been driving safely and are something they're looking to roll out uh, a little bit more in the delivery space. And I went on Hard Factor and I kind of shared my op opinions on why I think the abrupt and full automation of the supply chain industry is, it is inevitable. Please, I don't even want to hear you say, oh, you're the fucking horse breeder who wants to hold back technology. You're the horse breeder against the car and stuff. I, this technology is inevitable. On a long enough timeline, it's, this is that's just how kind of evolution works with technology. You, you have to, I mean, and technology is moving quickly. Obviously, we only got the airplane in what, 1903? And in, you know, the 60s, we were on the fucking moon. So I get how fast sometimes these things moved move and i'm not fully against that i know that it is going to happen however it's it's a matter of whether or not it is necessary and it is safe and it is pragmatic for the american people to get into this the first thing i'm going to dive into is kind of the obvious one it's the one that's brought up first it has to do with the jobs factor of the supply chain industry 
Now I'm pulling all these stats right from the OOIDA, that's the Owner Operator Independent Driver Association, and they get these stats from the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Association, as well as the DOT. So just some facts right off the top. In many ways, the trucking industry is the lifeblood of the nation as it not only employs approximately 3.9 million commercial driver's license holders, but it is also responsible for delivering 70% of all freight worth $11.5 trillion while it collects $791.7 billion in gross revenue. Now to split that up, they have this in a graph. So private fleets, so you know, you just put it in a $700 billion pie chart 250 billion are coming from private fleets 350 billion are coming for a four higher four higher fleets and then 60 billion is from courier and parcel and then 40 billion comes from ltl freight now here's the issue when it comes to this so i obviously work for a company i work for a small company we have about 30 trucks and that's how a lot of most of the trucking companies are. Now, when you're out there on the road, I'm sure you see a lot of Warner and Schneider, and there are mega carriers, but these were stats that shocked me. And these are why I think that it will, that if you start to fully automate the supply chain and remove drivers from the tractor trailer, this is where you're gonna run into some problems. So you have mega carriers. A mega carrier is described as a fleet of 5,000 or more trucks. There are a total of 41 of these. By the way, my debt, my source for this is the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Association. So a mega carrier has 5,000 trucks or more. The number of these carriers is there's 41 of those companies. Then there's very large companies, which are 2,000 to 5,000 trucks. There's 93 of those carriers. A large carrier is anyone with 101 to 2,000. There's 4,212 of those carriers. A medium-sized company, which I guess is what I would work, which is what I work for now, which is 20 trucks to 100, there are 24,133 of those firms. A small company is anywhere from seven to 19 trucks. That is 53,332 companies or firms. Then there are very small companies. That's one to six trucks. So these are your independent owner operators or possibly families that own one to six trucks run as teams or however, there are 502,626 of those small firms right there. That's a big number. So that's a huge chunk of this industry are small independent owner operator companies. I wanna go a little bit further. 6% of owner operators are women. Minority owner operators are around 21%. Most owner operators are about 36 years old. The average owner operator has a 2008 model year truck. Just moving on down, 34% of all owner operators served in the military. So you see where I'm going with this. So number one, you have, like I said, 502,000, we'll just say it's 502,000 small business independent owner operator for hire truck drivers. All of a sudden, you're going to tell them they're out of a job. They're no longer going to hire you. They're only going to hire the Walmart autonomous trucks or the, or basically 
any of the big companies, you know, and how many of the uh, large companies did I say that there were? So your mega carriers, we're only going to allow the 41 mega carriers who are able to afford all these autonomous trucks. We're only going to pay them to move their freight because they can afford to do this. So you don't think that 500 and 502,000 small firms might get a little violent because of that, because that's what it will lead to. Because I could tell you right now, I'll join them. And I have no problem saying this. I'll stand on the middle of a highway to stop an autonomous truck. I'll do that. You don't think that there are going to be guys out there slashing those tires, making sure that they can't move? You took the driver out. So you, you, you put the load at risk anyways by taking the driver away. You now have this freight moving around with nobody watching it, and you could put a padlock on it. What's stopping it from theft or violence from drivers you just put out of a job? And I'd hate to go this far and go this way and sound and sound a little woke here. But this is so we're talking about 6% of these owner ops are women, 21% are minorities. And then you have 36%, 34, sorry, 34% military, military veterans do this job. So you're just fueling the conspiracy theorists or, or uh, kind of the woke mob say, of course, you want to put women out of work. You want to put minorities out of work. You want to put veterans out of work. You just keep on doing that. Keep on going down the line. There's This is an opportunity. The trucking industry, when it comes to becoming an owner-operator, you can go from fucking federal prison to getting your CDL to owning a business. This is one of those industries that a lot of people in government say, oh, you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you can. You can get your CDL for damn cheap, damn near free, and you could start your own company without a college education, or anything like that. And these people are business owners. An owner-operator, they are running a business. The truck is their firm. They have to do accounting. They have to, they have accounts receivable, accounts payable. They have maintenance accounts. You have to, it's a customer service job. You have to maintain this vehicle. Like I said, some of these companies end up having one to six trucks. You may end up hiring employees. That's where these companies go. And so you want to automate it. You want to remove small businesses from this industry and only give it to 41 of those fucking mega carriers. Yeah, that sounds real great. That sounds like it's going to go over real, real well for, you know, these owner operators. Moving forward, the next thing is the trolley dilemma. The trolley dilemma is basically, say you're standing at a lever and there's a train on a single track and it splits into two and you have the choice between pulling the lever, but no matter what, if you pull the lever, the train could divert and it'll run over 10 people, or you can not pull the lever lever, and the train will run over one baby, so to speak. It's the trolley dilemma. So when we release these vehicles to being autonomous without any sort of safety driver in them, no matter how many times you run through an algorithm or you get these computers on the road, and log as many miles as you can for them to run these systems and no matter how many cameras you may put on these trucks there's going to come that time where a truck whether it's from weather a blown tire a blown trailer tire whatever the scenario because there's a million different things that could happen we're going to have to come to the terms with the fact that there will be a computer making the decision on whether or not it is going to kill a family of four or kill a a uh, couple on their honeymoon. It's going to happen. 
And are we ready as a species to give up that sort of, I don't want to call it freedom or, or what have you, to, but to give, give that up. We're relinquishing, you know, kind of some sort of self-determination to humans and we're leaving that up to a fucking robot. Are we ready for that as a species? I know I'm not. And I know that some of these Teslas have an autopilot and they've had their issues. Uh, I know they just recently tried to upgrade the software and that shit went haywire. Their self-driving, their autopilot mode is running into emergency vehicles with flashing lights. It, 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 for some reason, it just fucking goes towards them. You've had people get locked in these cars and fucking melt to death. I'm not ready to even give up of driving my own car and i don't think a lot of our generation i don't even think the gener i don't even think gen z's are maybe ready to give up driving yet because it sounds a little scary and dystopian because i know that if a perfectly fine working self-driving car could come out tomorrow and it could be a very affordable car you know 15 20 grand let's just say it's cheap i ain't fucking buying it i can tell you that right now and i won't i won't buy it for my kids i won't buy it for my wife i wouldn't go fucking near that thing be because of the trolley dilemma because i don't want a computer because that computer could also be picking whether or not you live or die it could send you right off a cliff instead of you know possibly another decision making it that's what it's doing it's it's making a rational decision it could be wrong but in theory it could be right because sometimes it because maybe it could factor in the money I don't really know, but I just know for a fact that it is not something that I'm ready for. And I don't think we as a species are completely ready for yet. The last thing when it comes to the automation of the supply chain, it's kind of one thing, but in two parts, it has to do with where this technology is coming from and possibly the dangers of it. So when it comes to the chips that go in our cars currently, and some of this technology, a lot of it is imported. So I can tell you right now firsthand, I know some drivers who work for PAM. They were on dedicated lanes either from Laredo, Texas to up in Lansing, Michigan or Detroit, somewhere around there because they would take stuff that came from Mexico, bring it up to Michigan. There's all sorts of motor vehicle lanes. That's primarily what PAM did a lot of. I, was, I went to a few Nissan plants myself, been to a Caterpillar plant, so on and so forth. I've done, like I mentioned in the episode with Pam, we did that back and forth Laredo to General Motors in Arlington. So they do a lot of that. So a lot of these parts and stuff comes, they are imported. And when it comes to some of this technology, especially a lot of this smart technology, think of our cell phones, think of, yeah, think of the smartphones. Where do people think that this technology is going to be come from? Like I mentioned earlier, we're going to be taking away jobs from Americans just by getting into automating the trucks. None of this chip technology or any of this self-driving autonomous technology that we're going to be getting, a lot of it, it's not going to be creating any jobs. We're going to be getting this stuff from China. It's all going to be imported bullshit from another country. So we're not even creating different jobs on the back end. Now that kind of segues into the next point. So when it comes to automating the supply chain, we're going to be getting these imported parts for our cars and trucks in from China. Now, 
I'd say China is our biggest adversary, followed by Russia in the world. We've had issues in the past few years with cybersecurity, things being hacked. We just recently had a pipeline being hacked. Uh, earlier this year, I remember there was photos of people filling up plastic bags with gasoline because one of our pipelines in the southern United States had gotten hacked. I've read a Business Insider article recently. It talked about how the, the next 9-11 is going to be a cyber 9-11. Now, how, how could that be? Well, you're not going to need to put terrorists in planes anymore when you don't need a human being to fly the plane. See, if we're going to start allowing computers to drive our trucks and drive our, drive our cars, you won't need any sort of hijackers or anything like that. You've, get, you've given them the keys to all they need. I mean, all I know is I don't read any articles about how Russia or China or really any other country is trying to automate their supply chain. But you know who loves hearing about it, I bet? China and Russia. Two countries that know exactly what it takes to invade the United States. You cannot bring standing armies into the United States. I, I'm pretty sure it was Abe Lincoln who said, you know, even if Napoleon Bonaparte came here with his largest army, army, he couldn't make it to the Blue Ridge Mountains. He wouldn't drink out of the Ohio River uh, if he did. In that if America was to die, to die, it would die by suicide. What do we have going on right now in this world politi politically? We are, you know, people are so divided and lost in their own echo chambers. Russia and China have legions of people online right now on Twitter and Facebook and TikTok doing everything they can to control us. They are spreading disinformation. Half of the fucking blue checks or any viral tweet or some of that out there, that's some fucking 22-year-old kid sitting in a computer chair in China, and he's getting a million retweets from whatever uh, leftist communist or whatever, like, big time Trump supporter or what some fucking or whoever they're all retweeting this and this information circulating they're invading the United States right now you know what would fucking be music to be China's ears automate the supply chain get more Americans out of work cause that civil unrest more of that violence that I was talking about where if you remove the jobs also it's the biggest Trojan horse you can ever give them because what sounds better than having you know, an 80,000 pound truck full of explosives, hazmat, gasoline, all of our freight. What would be what would be better for China than to be able to or Russia to be able to hack that and send that into a school or send that into a, a, the World Trade Center or send that into a, a shopping mall or any or a, a myriad of things you could do with it. And then they could just be using some express VPN. You'll never be able to catch the hackers. It's the biggest Trojan horse that we're doing. I know this technology is, is going to come. It, it is going to come. But the thing is, we don't need to start implementing it now. I truly believe we are setting ourselves up for a possible disaster. And I think we need to figure out a few more things that matter first. Why are we rushing to remove almost 4 million people out of a job when we have people on the streets starving, veterans without homes, a broken healthcare system, and all these other things going on in the country, 
all we're going to do is just tr we're just going to try to figure out this way to remove four million people from a job, totally upend the supply chain, open our country up to a Trojan horse, be more reliant and dependent on China. I think there's a lot more negatives right now than there are positives going into automating these trucks. And I'm going to be a little snark and snidey right here, and I don't really care what you think about this opinion. But this fucking cocksucker from that article, the CEO, this Gaddick, his quote was uh, that removing the driver from the truck is the holy grail of this industry. You want to know what the fucking holy grail of this industry is? It, the holy grail would be removing the CEO from his job. How about we get rid of you? We replace you with a fucking computer because that computer, all it needs to do is just look at the money, everything, and it'll make the most rational, cost-effective, and uh, cost-effective and profit, you know, profit-inducing or what'll gain you the most revenue. A computer can do your job. So how about so how about that as a trade-off? How about we replace the CEO with a fucking computer, and then that way we can eliminate your half a million to a couple million dollars a year salary. That just freed up a whole bunch of money to go to that company. Doesn't that sound fucking great? All right, honestly, I'm done. I, I can go on and I can go on too far about it. Uh, so before I get any sort of heated, like I said, this is just something that has been on my mind since I read the article and since Hard Factor gave me the opportunity. I kind of wanted to go in a little bit more depth on it, kind of share you my opinion. Now, look, at the end of the day, like I said, I'll probably join the protesting if it were to happen tomorrow and I'd stand with, you know, the owner ops and I'd block some of the highways it, as a pragmatic thinking adult guy. <laughs> um, I think I, I like I've done with anything in life. I think I would make do. I do have some stuff to fall back on. I'd like to think I've made a valuable network over the past 31 years of my life. Uh, I did spend some time in college. I have a degree. I'd, I'd have to hit the ground running. Uh, hopefully, you know, I wouldn't be behind bars for vandalizing a, a robot truck. But honestly, hey, that's something I'd, uh, I wouldn't mind bragging about. I could talk about it on, the, on, on an episode of the podcast or something. But in, in reality, it, you know, I think we'd all make do. I, I, I do think, I mean, we'd figure it out. It'd be hard. There'd be some pain. And I, we'd figure it out. Not just the job thing, like I said, it's 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 the security thing that that uh, that kind of scares me because you know for those of us who remember 9/11, you know it's it's a fucking catastrophe. It was a disaster, and looking back 20 years, you see some of these videos and new footage that's still coming out. Could only imagine that you know if that were to happen again, and you know there's no one to even point the finger to. So I mean, it's just something to think about for people. But before I let you go, how about a chaser? Where am I at the time of recording? I'm in Arkansas's third largest city. This is a city I get through a lot. One of our company's biggest customers is down here. It is Fort Smith, Arkansas. Has a population of just under 88,000. Little fun fact, Fort Smith has a sister city of Cisterna di Latina in Italy, which was the site of a World War II battle fought by U.S. Army Ranger and Fort Smith native William O. Darby. Fort Smith is right on the Arkansas-Oklahoma state border, right at the confluence of the Arkansas and Poteau Rivers, also known as Bell Point. Getting into some of the history of Fort Sill, which is pretty interesting, pretty eye-opening too. 
somewhat sad. This area was wandered like most of North America for thousands of years by Native Americans. They were attracted to the advantageous site near the rivers and they used waterways for transportation and trading and supply fish to their villages. The French were here hanging out, trading fur with them. They called this area New France and La Louisiana. Colonial fur traders also came here from the American colonies and also traded with the Native American tribes. That's actually how St. Louis was founded, off of the fur trade. Now, the U.S. acquired this land through the Louisiana Purchase, shout out Napoleon, and Fort Smith itself was first occupied as a military outpost in 1817. It was named after this guy, General Thomas Smith. He commanded a U.S. Army Rifle Regiment, but that was in St. Louis. He sent this guy, Stephen Long, down here to find a suitable military site on the Arkansas River for a fort. <laughs> this guy, Stephen Long's job was topographical engineer, which is the most military way of saying he's a map maker. Crazy to think how an MOS at one time in the military was map maker. But moving on, a stockade was built and occupied from 1817 to 1822. Uh, it was commanded by a, a group of small regular troops by Major William Bradford. And then a small settlement formed around the fort as well, but the army ended up abandoning it in 1824, moved 80 miles away. However, due to the strategic location of the site, the federal government reestablished a military presence at Fort Smith during the 1830s, largely due to the Indian Removal Act, which was brought under by President Andrew Jackson. Like I said, some of the history is kind of sad. The military helped escort Choctaw and Cherokee tribes out of this area into land that the federal government had granted to Native Americans. I don't know why they had to do this shit. Uh, I don't like it. You know, we've been trading fur with the, these guys for a while. They've been living here forever, so I don't see what the fucking problem was. Um, the good news on it is the Choctaw and Cherokee have, in large ways, reorganized and have and are federally recognized and have gotten a lot of their land back. Um, and and by land back, I mean today. They've really like recently they've gotten their land back. U.S. Army used Fort Smith as a base during the Mexican-American War, which helped, which after the Mexican War, the U.S. got more territory in the Southwest, and then later under President Polk, the annexation of the Republic of Texas, which was still its own country at one time. For about a getting into the Civil War now, for about a year, the Confederates owned it, and then Union troops under General Steele took control of it on September 1st, 1863. 1863 was actually a big turning point in the U.S. Civil War. Uh, that's where Grant had won a huge victory in Vicksburg. The Union had won in Gettysburg. We're obviously taking back Fort Smith. Uh, 1863 is really when things started to turn in the Union's favor. There was another small fight here in 1864, but the Union Army maintained command in the area until the war ended in 1865. So since it was under Union control, a lot of southern people who were loyal to the union and other people escape you know slaves who were trying to escape and get into free union controlled states because of emancipation they were trying to get up here and it was used as a you know sort of a, a refugee city for for people up until the entire end of the war now this is actually interesting about this guy judge isaac parker He's considered one of Fort Smith's most notable historic figures. Um, 
Judge Isaac Parker and William Henry Harrison Clayton, who's also known as W.H.H. Clayton. In 1874, William Henry Harrison Clayton was appointed U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Arkansas by President Grant. Fort Smith was a bustling community full of brothels, saloons, and outlaws just across the river from Indian Territory. William Clayton realized the strong judge would be necessary to bring law and order to the region. He knew that Isaac Parker was a strong judge, but Judge Parker had been appointed Chief Justice of the Utah Territory and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. With the help of President Grant and U.S. Senator Powell Clayton, former governor of Arkansas William Clayton was able to gain the appointment of Judge Parker in the Fort Smith District. Now this is where it gets kind of kind of funny. Judge Isaac Parker served as U.S. District Judge from 1875 to 1896. His nickname was the Hanging Judge. In his first term after assuming his post, he tried 18 people for murder, convicted 15 of them, and sentenced eight of those to die. Six of these men were later hanged that same day. Over the course of his career in Fort Smith, Parker sentenced 160 people to death. Of those, 79 were executed on the gallows. His courthouse is now marked as a National Historic Site, where it says, quote, more men were put to death by the U.S. government than in any other place in American history. Kind of, kind of, you know, kind of sick, but kind of badass, too. I, you know, at the time, you know, some people probably thought he was a fucking hero. I, I don't know. Um, but nowadays, Fort Smith is, you know, always been considered a regional manufacturing center. And it has major plants located in the city operated by Ream. Train, air conditioners, Georgia Pacific, Gerber, Kraft Heinz, Planners Peanuts, graphic packaging, international paper, and many more. It's a great city. There's a lot of jobs around here. And despite having that black eye on its resume of being a part of the Indian Removal Act, Fort Smith today continues to thrive just as it did post-Civil War. That's going to do it. For today's episode, guys, I want to thank you again so much from the bottom of my heart for listening, for all of your positive feedback. If you haven't yet, please go like, follow, subscribe on Spotify, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Lombard Trucking. If you or anybody you know is interested in getting your CDL and coming out here and driving, please do not hesitate to reach out. And as always, if you ever want to talk, I'll be here.